Well, good morning. On our way to 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's uh, open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, it's been a couple of weeks uh, since we've been in our study. After uh, Sunday school a couple of weeks ago, Alan came up with a, a very insightful observation. Um, if when you have those, please speak up. <laughs> uh, it was something that was actually worth, I wish he brought it up in class because that way everybody would be able to, to hear it and, and you're, you're counting on my memory uh, to remember to, to bring it up uh, in the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that it is sufficient, that it is authoritative. Thank you that you've given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Help us today as we come to, to look at this passage as to how you would have us uh, to function inside of your church, your body, your bride for your son. Help us to to see you this morning and help us to order our ways rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week in 1 Timothy, well, our last time, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we got into the subject of how women are to function inside the church. In fact, um, and Ellen, after class, brought up that there is a parallel passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter is, is talking about how women should comport themselves for worship. And so if we look in 1 Peter chapter 3, we can begin at verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, that, his observation was coming out of the issue of why is it that sometimes women tend to take on roles inside the church that do not rightly belong to them. Very often it's because the men are not stepping up and taking on the responsibilities that are rightfully theirs. And so there becomes, when you have somebody, you know, something needs to be done, the people who should be doing it aren't doing it, therefore somebody needs to step up and, 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 and do this even though it's not my place to do so. Ever had that feeling? Nobody in here has ever had that feeling. No. We know better than that. In fact, it's not restricted to women. Think for me. Can you think of an Old Testament example of somebody who stepped up to take on a, a, a responsibility that was not his? It was a man who did it. How about Saul? What did Saul do? He took on a responsibility that was not his to do. Andrew. That's right. Samuel was supposed to show up. Samuel was late. He wasn't actually. But Saul, because Samuel wasn't there, Saul decided to offer sacrifices. That wasn't his place. And what excuse did he give? 
Well, you weren't here and it needed to be done and I was concerned. Ah, you were concerned. You were afraid. Something wasn't going the way in which you felt it wasn't on your timetable and so you stepped up and you took something over. This isn't restricted to women. The idea here is that, and and again, (laughs) I feel for women. I feel for my wife. She is supposed to submit to me. I am not a perfect man. I am far from it. And yet she is supposed to be in subjection to me and to my leadership. I can understand why she from time to time she would look at something and she might get concerned. She might be afraid that you know something isn't going to go the way that it should. I can see how she could feel that way. The point is, is that what we need to be doing and what Peter is encouraging the women in his day to do is to do what God says and trust God that he is going to take care of them despite the the fallibilities of men, particularly husbands. Look, any husband in here feel that his wife doesn't have anything to be concerned about? Yeah, okay, we get it. And men, are you immune from this? Think about the people who are in authority over you, in rightful authority over you. What is our role to be to those who are in authority over us? Be in subjection to the rulers, to the authorities. Well, what happens if our rulers are fallible? What are we to do? We are to be subject. Unless something that they are telling us to do is going to cause us to sin, we are to be subject. And we are to do that without fear. And so the the point here that, that Alan was bringing up was... We need to be more focused on obeying and doing what God has given us to do and trust God that he will take care of us even though those over us may be wrong. Any comments on that? Any questions on that? Are you awake? (laughs) All right, some people are laughing, but all right. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3 is actually going to be a fairly familiar passage as it gets a fair amount of attention here, honestly. Let's read the chapter. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, and good managers of their children and their own households. 
For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Last week, or our last time, we saw that uh, one of the foremost priorities of the church is prayer. And Paul went through and instructing Timothy as to how that was to be done, who it was to be done by. He gave instruction about women and how women are to conduct themselves uh, for worship. And now he's going to step into talking about the kind of men that you look for when you are uh, looking for leaders in the church. There are five trustworthy statements in the pastorals, and this is the second one of them in 1 Timothy. The idea here, this is a faithful statement. This is something you can bank on. In fact, it's something that you need to hold to. And it talks about a man and his relationship to being a pastor. He uses two different terms here. If any man aspires, now this idea of aspiring is the idea of stretching out in order to lay hold of something. Uh, if you're in basketball, think about it as going for a rebound. The ball is up and you go and you go to try to attain. That's the idea of aspire. It's something that a man is reaching for. Now, stop for a second and think about that for a moment. Is it wrong for a man, and pastors are to be men, is it wrong for a man to aspire to be a pastor? Is that a wrong thing? Is that a bad thing? Paul says no. There's no problem with that if that's what is in a man's heart. In fact, it is a good thing that he desires to do. Now, that word desire there is a word that we're used to, but it's not necessarily used always in a good content. The, the word there for desire is epithemia, which is also transfer, translated how? Lust. It is a strong desire. Now, that strong desire can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. So, for instance, I've listed out for you here in your notes, 1 Peter 1.12, angels long to look into the things of God. Is that a bad thing for them? No, it's not. Revelation 9.6, men will long to die. They will strongly desire to die and God won't let them because that's part of the judgments that are being poured out. Matthew 13, 17, men desired to see the days of Christ. Remember, that was where Jesus was saying, many have longed to see the things that you see, but did not see them, right? Jesus, it's used of him when he said, I have earnestly desired that I may eat this Passover with you. So the idea of epithemia, and then it's also in James 4, that's where it's transferred, translated as lust. So it's a strong desire that can be for a good thing or for a bad thing. In this case here, it's a good thing. And so aspiring to the office is not bad. It's not improper. But what does it require? If a man is going to aspire to be a pastor then he has to have certain character qualities. If he has these character qualities, then you're going to have a really good fit. In fact, should a man desire to be a pastor? 
If you have a pastor and he does not want to be in that position, is that a good thing? No, it's not. In fact, if you look over in 1 Peter 5, it talks about, uh, in fact, let's just go there. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy 3 and flip over to 1 Peter 5. We'll play ping pong today with the New Testament. In fact, I think this is the passage that Charles is going to be in this morning. I don't know that he's going to get into this particular verse or not. 1 Peter 5.2 Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. So if you've got somebody who's a pastor who's kind of getting drug along by his ear, you know, you, we've all done that from you know, trying to pull somebody along, that's a bad combination. And so you need, some, you need to have somebody who's actually um, enthused about being in the position that God is putting him in. And we need to, and just to go back to that for a moment, who actually selects elders? God does. Where do you get that? <laughs> if you go back to Acts chapter 20, you'll find that, that Paul, when he's meeting with the Ephesian elders, um, he talks about, you know, because you have been, um, oh, I'm not going to be able to quote it right, so let me flip back. Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Remember, God gifts believers. He gives them the gift that they need for their place in the church where he ends up putting them. So it's, it's part of a body. Every part of the body needs to be functioning properly in order for the body to be able to move forward as it ought. Make sense? This term overseer is, there are a bunch of terms here that are going to be interchangeable. You'll, you'll see bishop, you'll see uh, presbytery, you'll see elder, you'll see pastor. All of those are talking about the same position. Now, it was a little different in the first century than today. In the first century, there weren't necessarily a lot of men lining up to be pastors. There weren't paid positions. And frankly, if you were the pastor of a church uh, that was subject to persecution, who was likely target number one when people came through the door? It's the pastor. And so this wasn't a, a job that people were, were, were signing up for. Um, if you were walking through the jungle on a patrol looking for enemies, what's the most dangerous position in line? The guy who's on point, right? If you're going to walk into an ambush, he's the first guy who's going to get there. If he's going to go over a tripwire, he's the first guy who's going to get there. And so, in the first century, you had to be serious about your belief. You had to be serious about your commitment if you were going to take on the role of being a pastor. Nowadays, uh, and it's not just in our culture, uh, I remember being in Africa and Kenya uh, back in the early 2000s. Gosh, it's almost 20 years ago now. Um, 
being a pastor was a status symbol. It was a, it was a, it was a place of power. It was a place of prestige. And so you would end up having men who wanted to be able to have those things without necessarily having to have the godly character to go along with it and, the, and, and performing the actual functions of, of being a pastor. And we all know that here there are plenty of people who uh, occupy a pulpit because it's a means by which they're getting rich. You can do that if you preach the right message. The only problem is it's not the right message. If you tickle people's ears, you can get them to do all kinds of things for you. If you're going to proclaim God's word as God proclaims it, then chances are you're not going to last too long in a, in a, in a position like that. And so it's a good thing. It's a good work. It's a fine work that he desires to do. So, what's he to be like? And this is similar back to what we saw in Titus, right? When it talks about, here's the kind of man that you're looking for. Number one, above reproach. That's kind of the umbrella under which everything else is going to fall. Above reproach means is that you can throw something at this guy and it won't stick because there's no reason for it to. He, there's nothing in his life, there's no uh, glaring points at which someone can go and say, this man is immoral because of this or this or this, or this man is disqualified because of this or this or this. It's the idea of being blameless. Nobody can bring a charge against him and have it stick. He's got integrity. And now we run into, again, the one-woman man. Again, when it's translated husband of one wife, the idea here is one woman man. This man is committed to his wife. He doesn't have a wandering eye. It's talking about the quality of his marriage. Now, we, we dealt with this mostly, we dealt with this at some length back in Titus. Does anybody have any questions about that? The one woman man. No questions? All right, let's push. He's temperate, sober-minded, self-controlled. He's prudent, discreet, again, self-disciplined, self-restrained. In Titus, that word was translated sensible. And remember, sensible fell on everybody. That was on men, that was on women, that was on older men, that was on women, that was on younger men, younger women. Being sensible. He's to be respectable. Interesting, one of the lexicons had this idea of respectable, one who voluntarily places limitations on his own freedom. He's hospitable. Hospitable is loving strangers. So again, and, and Jesus uh, even talked about this, right? When you give a party, you don't give the party for your friends because they may pay you back. In fact, that's kind of the expectation, right? It's, it's relational ping pong. You know, we go to your house this time, you're going to come to our house next time, and, and it goes back and forth. No, when you're going to do that, do it for somebody who can't pay you back. That way it's something that's actually, you know, that's where you're being generous. You're giving without any expectation of receiving anything in return. And again, orderly, proper. Oh, excuse me, that's respectable. Now, the only thing in here in this list of qualities for a pastor that actually talks about what he actually is going to do is he needs to be able to teach. Titus did the same, th the same requirement was present in Titus. He didn't put it just as being able to teach. He actually fleshed that out a little bit. It's the idea of being able to exhort. So you need to be able to uh, exhort, encourage, uh, 
show people and, and, and put them in the direction of sound doctrine, that doctrine that is healthy, that doctrine that is right, and being able to contradict that which is false. So again, it's, it's, it's showing the right and fighting against the wrong and being able to do both equally. You're also going to see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He's going to come back to that again. In fact, let's flip over to that one yet. We'll get a little preview for a few weeks. 2 Timothy 2, 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in, who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Now there, the, the focus there is mostly on correction, right? And how that's to be done. Now I suppose that there is a time to uh, be quote unquote in your face uh, Paul spoke of when he met Peter and Peter had uh, gone back over to rejecting Gentiles because there were Jews present. Peter said, I, I, I confronted him to his face. You're wrong to do this. And I suppose there is a time for that. Mostly when it comes to correction, what Paul comes back to continually and habitually is that it's to be done in a gentle manner. Now, why would that, why would that be something that would be important? I'm sorry? It expresses the love of Christ. More apt to be received. Okay, and therein, how often do we run into something where the truth is being spoken, but the messenger is getting in the way of the message? You don't want to do that. It's difficult, you know, it's because, and again, what is the important thing that needs to occur when you're bringing that kind of a message? What should be first and foremost? that whoever it is that you're bringing the message to hears the message. When you are pursuing a wandering sheep, the sheep is walking away. When you go to pursue the sheep, what is the intended result? You're able to get to the sheep and bring the sheep back. And so again, the idea here is that you, do, you are to confront false doctrine. You are to confront wrong understanding of Scripture. But don't get in the way. Do it in a gentle fashion. Do it in a means where you're trying to actually win the person that you're talking to. Andrew? Well, okay, and the, the point is, is that there are times when you do something in a loving fashion, but you do need to speak directly. And that is true. You, you, you do have people who will reject that. You can have brothers who reject that. Uh, that's why uh, when you have the wandering, let's go back to the wandering sheep. The sheep wanders off. Uh, who's the first person that's supposed to go? The person who got wronged right? They're supposed to love this person enough to go after them, to pursue them in order to be able to try to bring them back. Marianne, you've got a questioning look on your face. You okay? 
if the if the person who's wandering doesn't hear the first person, then what do you do? Well, you take one or two others and you go and you try to do it again. And so that way you're trying to if if there's a if there is some type of a presentation issue that's getting in the way, if there is uh, <laughs> all right, let's go here. Why is it that our teenagers will sometimes listen to somebody else speak the exact same message as the parent and the kid won't hear it from the parent? Anybody ever have that issue happen? Familiarity breeds contempt. Now, if you're a parent, hopefully, what's your response to that? Praise the Lord. That's right. All right? I don't care who carries the mail. I want my kid to get the message. And if if, if he needs to have somebody else do it, okay. As long as he gets the message, that's what's important. So again, that's, that's the idea here is when you're, when you're confronting somebody, what is the attitude that I have, that you have, when we're, when we're actually having that confrontation? If it's the restoration of the person who right now is in error, if it's their restoration, then that will greatly dictate my attitude and, my, and, and how I go about trying to do that. I don't want to get in the way of that. Because again, that's what I'm after. If I'm just trying to justify myself, then I've got a problem. And I'm probably going to alienate the guy further or the gal further. So again, being able to teach. Swords, offensive or defensive, they're both. And you need to be able to wield it appropriately. And that's exactly why when you talk about the sword being the word of God, being able to wield it for the idea of the positive sound doctrine and the negative being able to confront false teaching, false doctrine. This goes on. He's not addicted to wine. He's not a drunkard. And that talks about, that, that's the idea of alcohol abuse. It's not uh, being necessarily a teetotaler, but... This is a person who is in consistent uh, possession of his faculties. Remember again, when we talked, when Dave was preaching through Ephesians 5, that idea of being, don't give yourselves over to wine. Don't give yourselves over to the domination of alcohol. Rather, give yourselves over to the domination of the Holy Spirit. That's the idea there. He's not pugnacious, he's not a bully. He doesn't settle matters with his fists. You know, his his first response when you're having a dispute over an issue is, let's take this outside. He doesn't do that. The opposite of that, though, he's gentle, fair, unassertive, appropriate. Who'd you rather be around? Somebody who is a bully or somebody who is gentle. You can be a gentle man and be a man's man. Being gentle does not negate someone's being able to to do what needs to be done at all. He's peaceable. He's not, dispo- he's not disposed to fight. So again, this idea here of, of peaceable, he's one who's going to tone things down. You're, you're walking into, uh, you're going into a storm and you bring peace and calm. You're not injecting more vitriol into the situation. When you come in, uh, it's like... Uh, I'm told in the war 
that when they needed the, uh, the waters to calm down, they would pump oil onto the water to make it smooth out. It's that kind of idea. That when you come into the situation, you're bringing calm. You're having a calming influence on what's going on. He's free from the love of money. He's not covetous. He's satisfied with what he has. Manages his own household well. Now, the idea of, of your family being a microcosm of the church, this is raised several times. Uh, it's raised with both pastors. We'll see it's going to be raised with deacons. You look at the man's family, and that will give you an idea as to how he's going to get along in the church. Now, that does kind of, again, we dealt with this issue back in Titus. Uh, does a pastor's children need to be believers for him to be a pastor? And by the way, it's gonna, you might as well uh, line this one up for deacon because there's the same requirement in deacons. So do their children, is it required that they be believers? Okay? Corey, that was assertive? No. Why is that? Okay, it's not what it says in the text. And we had to, we dealt with this more in Titus because in Titus it use, actually uses pistis, which is which can be translated believing or faithful. It can be translated either way, and it is translated both ways, almost equally. Uh, Richard, you had your hand up. Well, okay, and so, right, and which is really the place where ultimately that comes to. Uh, if you have a pastor and his children are believers, was that his doing? No, it's not. No, it's not. And the danger of, 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 of saying that he had some you know, that he was partly responsible for that, that's all God's doing, right? Richard's point, God is the one who elects. God is the one who chooses. There are many who have been saved in spite of their parents, right? Many. Now, some of us, I, I was blessed to be brought up by godly parents, I am grateful every day of my life for my mom and dad. They were good parents in that regard. They pointed me to the Savior. Many others, they didn't have that blessing. Am I saved because of my mom and dad? No. Do my mom and dad get credit for my salvation? No. Were they faithful in discharging their duties as parents? Yes, they were. You can have people be faithful in their dis discharging their duties as parents and yet have children who aren't believing. The question becomes, are they subject? Do they obey? Are they rebellious? And are they rebellious and mom and specifically dad, are they rebellious and dad doesn't do anything about it? Now, that's where you start running into the, the, the actual comparison then to the church. If you have children at home who should be under the authority of their father and he does not 
correct them and he doesn't do the things needed in order to bring them into line, that's when you have a problem that's going to, be, that's going to exist in the church. See, if you're going to hold the position that, that you know, the children of the, de- of the pastor need to be believers, then, and the family is, an extent, is, is, is a microcosm, it's a subset of the church, and you've got anybody, is anybody going to blame the pastor when there's somebody in the church who's not a believer? Is that the pastor's fault? No, it's not. Now, how is he to deal with that person? The same day, way, hopefully, that he's dealing with his kids. You present the truth. You do it in a loving way. You do it in a consistent way. And you live in such a way that the child can at least be in line. I don't want to bring reproach against dad. I don't agree with him. I don't believe the way that he does. But I also don't want to bring a stain on him. His kids are under control. Now, here's one. There's a requirement here in Ephesus that was not present in Crete. He's not to be a new convert. Now, again, at Ephesus, the Ephesian church has been around for a while. It's been around for probably at least 10 years. You don't have to take somebody who's a brand new believer and put him into a position of leadership. In fact, don't do that. So we see a couple of things here where there's references to the devil. So we have this uh, requirement, uh, not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. What's he mean by that? What happened to Satan? Pride. Who was Satan? The implication is is that Satan was one of the preeminent angels. He's one of the big guys. And that wasn't enough. He wanted to be the guy. And so, boom. His, that's where his pride comes in. I, you know, the, those I wills. I will be like the Most High, right? That's, and, and the condemnation that he received was what? Kicked out of heaven. And he takes a, a third of the angels with him in his rebellion, right? By the way, if you ever read any of the Frank Peretti books, which I don't recommend, but if you do, you know, and it's talking about all these, you know, this angels and, uh, you know, spiritual warfare and all of that. Uh, always remember, Satan took one-third of the angels with him, which means God still has how many? Two-thirds. God has twice as many angels. I don't think he's sweating being outnumbered, Okay. So not a new convert. He doesn't, you, you don't want to put somebody in there who ends up with an inflated ego. Don't, uh, he's going to get into this later with, uh, you know, don't lay your hands on too quickly. Don't do that. We've run into this here where we, you know, somebody was uh, showing some, some growth and, uh, and so, you know, they were getting brought on a little more and, and it did not end well. And then you got to have a good, he has to have a good reputation with outsiders. Not one way in the pulpit and another way out of it. And again, that idea is so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So the first one, he's being like the devil in, in, in having his pride elevated. And now here, you don't want him to have uh, somehow be ensnared by the devil and entrapped. All right, any questions with that? That's what a pastor is supposed to be like.
That's, that's the kind of man that you're looking for. And so now he's going to talk about deacons. Now remember in Titus, he didn't, uh, Paul didn't tell Titus anything about deacons. He was, they're just trying to get everything up and rolling. So here's what you need to do to have men who can oversee the church. Here in Ephesus, there was a need for, for men to be able to come along and do some of the work of the ministry and free up the elders for being able to do the preaching and the teaching and uh, the shepherding. So deacons, verse 8, deacons likewise, so in the same manner, must be men of dignity. So again, they're men. We're going to get into women in verse 11. Dignity. Something that is worthy. In fact, the, the word actually is, is the word from which we get to venerate. And again, what, what, what does venerate mean? Venerate means worship. Okay? Now, does that mean you want to worship your deacons? No. All right, and I'm looking at some of our deacons in here. No, no, no. We're not, we're not going to worship the deacons, but they ought to be men who are worthy of it. That's the point. You live an exemplary life so that when people are looking for an example of what a Christian is supposed to look like, they can walk inside their church and they can point at that guy and say, ah, I need to live like him, like him. That include, that, that's the deacons. Now, your pastors are to be that way as well, but your deacons are to be that as well. And so, again, they, they, are, they are respectable to the point that they are worthy of respect. They're not double-tongued. They don't say one thing and mean something else. They don't talk out of one side of their mouth and then another. So they're, they're singular they don't play the double, the, the, uh, double innuendo game. The, uh, what is that? Double entendre? I can say something, well, it has another... No, we don't do that kind of thing. They're not double-tongued. They're not a drunkard. Again, they're not fond of sordid game. The idea here is they, they, he won't dishonor his character for money. He holds fast the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, let's go back, and we've talked about this before. What was a mystery in the New Testament? By the way, the word mystery is a transliteration of the Greek word. Mysterion is the Greek word, and so they just carried it across, and that's where we get mystery from. What was a mystery in the New Testament? Was it a whodunit? You know, it was the butler in the dining room with the lead pipe. What, what was a mystery? A pipe? Well, they're one of the mysteries. They're one of them. What, what was a mystery? What, what, did, what, did, what did it mean? You were saying something true. Okay. The, a mystery in, in, the, in the way that, that, that the New Testament uses the word was something that was hidden in previous times but is now being revealed. And there were a bunch of them. I think Paul had six or seven of them. One of them, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs. Was that news? Oh, yeah, right? In fact, it was so new that the, the Jews had, the, the initial church had a real, how do we deal with this? Uh, Christ was a mystery. There, there were a number of them which previously hidden, not, you know, maybe hinted at. You can go back and you, see, you can see places in the Old Testament where many of these things were referred, you know, there, the glimpses were given of them, but most for the most part, not revealed. Now they're being revealed. The idea here is that the deacon holds on to the mystery of the faith. That is talking about the gospel he is to hold on to that with a clear conscience and remember when we went back through Titus the idea of the clear conscience there is it's it's allied with sound doctrine and 
we're not deviating from that. We're holding on to sound truth. And that is what we live by. That is what we believe. That is how we speak, is, is, is what is true. And deacons are to be noted for that. They have a death grip on sound doctrine. Now, why would that be necessary for a deacon? I'm hoping somebody's going to come back with a question. Why would this be important for a deacon? They're the example. Okay, understanding so that they can turn explain. The question I was hoping somebody was going to come back with is, why isn't everybody supposed to be that way? That's the point. That really is the point. You see. When you go through and you look at the requirements for being a pastor and you, be, and you find the requirements for being a deacon, are they any different than things that everybody else in the church is commanded to do? Is it only the pastors and the deacons that are to be hospitable? No. You go to Hebrews 13, that's a general command to be hospitable. Is everybody? Oh, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a pastor. I'm going to take on the role here. I'm not a pastor. There was a good part of my life. I was not a pastor. Did that mean I was not supposed to be gentle? I was not supposed to be kind? Again, the only one in, that, in the pastor list is being able to teach. And that's not a character issue. That is a gift. So again, all of these things are things that all of us are required to be. God desires that of every one of us to be. And so again, does doctrine matter? Yeah, it does. He keeps a clear conscience. His acts and his attitudes are consistent with sound doctrine. Again, the, 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 a couple of times it's been brought up, he's to be an example. And that's, and that's a good way to think of it. Again, uh, the... the, the the verse in the Bible that probably gives me the most pucker factor. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is a tall order. Now there's interesting here with a deacon. He's to be tested before you appoint him. Interesting that that's not in there for being a pastor. And I'm not sure quite what to make of that. Um, being a deacon, there's not a probationary period. You don't, put it, you don't put somebody in there on a test run basis. You do that before you put him in the position. You get an idea as to you know, who he is before you, 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 you put the label on him. He's to be a one-woman man. Now, there's something else with deacons here that, again, is even different than being, well, Paul never gets into it with the uh, pastors. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You know what? There's a promise of blessing for men who are faithful as deacons. Uh, I've got four, five, six. I got six deacons in the room. Have you found that to be true? Have you found that your confidence in the gospel has been buttressed by your service? I am grateful for faithful deacons. And we have them. The idea of great confidence, frankness in speech. Now, that term 
you'll find in Hebrews chapter 4 when it talks about boldly approaching the throne of grace. The boldly approaching, that's this idea here of being frank. It's it's the idea where you're able to go in and you're able to interrupt. You're able to walk right into the throne room without knocking. You can go in and you can present your requests before God, knowing that he's going to hear you and he's going to answer you according to his will. Boldness in speaking. Now, chapter 3, verse 11, we get a, an interposition here. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Just this little blurb. Right there in the middle of where, God's talk, where Paul's talking about deacons. So, this one, uh, people are all over the board here. Because there's this word, women, gynecos, um, can mean women or it can mean wives. It's the same word and it's determined by the context. Now, in, in this particular point, the context for that is not really clear, in all honesty. When you look at women, if you go back to Titus 2, and look at, the, at what uh, Paul encourages Titus to encourage the women to be, you're going to see most of these characteristics. So could it be women in general? Well, it could, but it's probably not seeing as what Paul is talking about in this chapter. He's talking about pastors, and he's talking about deacons. So chances are he's not going to be talking about women in general. Second is, could he be talking about wives? And if he's talking about wives, whose wives? Now, there are some who take this, that this is to be the deacon's wives, since it's surrounded by the characteristics for being a deacon. And there there are good men who hold on to that view, that this is talking about deacon's wives. It raises the question as to why the deacon's wife is required to be this way and not the pastor's wife. The third view uh, splits. They're both going to fall into the category here of it's it's related somehow to service to the church. And that's where you get the idea of there's, there's deaconesses, there's female deacons. Then you've got the other, which is going to come off of this and say, well, no, it's not actually an office. It's, they're like deacon's assistants who help out with, you know, special things that, you know, is more appropriate for a woman to do. Now, I don't think, we, I don't think you can make an argument that it's all women I don't think you can make it. I don't, th- I don't buy the idea that it's deacons' wives. I think that this is going to be dealing with women that are servants in the church. If you look in Romans 16.1, you'll find that Phoebe is a servant, diakonos, in the church. She, she's a, the word deacon literally means what? I got six guys in here that should be answering that question straight out. Thank you. Servant. That's what deacon means. Servant. So, we here have held that, okay, that that we have deaconesses. In fact, I've got a deaconess sitting up here uh, close to the front and a couple of others that, uh, you know, we have been approaching for for that idea. Basically, a deaconess is is one who helps the deacons in, in theirs. They serve in ways that are appropriate for them to be able to serve. I think that's probably the best way to take that. What are they to be like? They are to be dignified, just as the deacons are to be, just as the pastors are to be. So they're dignified. They're somebody who's respectable. Now there's one that gets... and. and, and I, The men don't get tagged for this. The women do. They are not to be malicious gossips. Now, maybe 
that was something that was really relative to Paul's day. But you'll, we're going to run into this throughout Timothy, where it's talking about women who go from house to house and they're, they, they, they become busybodies. They become, they're, in fact, the word malicious gossip, the, the word is diabolos, from which we get the word devil. They're slanderers. So, for whatever reason, that mostly gets attached to women. I, perhaps they're more prone to it. I don't know. Men were not to be that way either, you know, just as a, as, a, as a freebie there. The idea being here is that they're not to be that way. They are not to be spreading rumors. They are not to be gossips. They are not to be um, doing those things. Now, why, what would be one reason why the women might be more susceptible to that? The expectation is, is that the women are going to be in more frequent contact with each other. They're going to be in each other's homes more often than the men. Perhaps that's part of it. I don't know. But the idea here is that they're to control their tongue. They're to be temperate, faithful you know, in all things, rightly discharging their duties. If you have questions about this, go back to Titus 2. Because it talked about that and actually fleshed it out a little more. That's why I haven't been wanting to necessarily go on and on in here. Any questions up to here? You all look like you're really trying to keep your eyes open. Timothy himself. Paul's wanting to come back. We don't know if Paul ever got back to Ephesus. We don't know if Paul ever got back there at all. But he's encouraging Timothy. Timothy, the way that you make sure that you're a good example is that you focus on your daily behavior. If you're consistent in your character on a day-by-day -day basis, then you're going to be a good example for those who are following you. And then he uses a term, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, the deacons and the pastors have all been referred to in dealing with their households. The church is God's household. And we are the ones who are to be leading in that. It's God's household which takes on even greater importance than being mine or yours. This is God's. And we are to conduct ourselves properly for being in God's household, which means if I'm a child, I am to be in subjection. I am to be lining up. If I am a, a parent, then I am to be in watching over those who are under my charge in order to be faithful in being a steward in God's household. All right, and really quickly, at the end of the chapter, this apparently is a, is a creed. This would, it could either be a hymn or just a, an early creed that is a snapshot of what the gospel is. Jesus was revealed in the flesh, right? Born of a virgin, in the fullness of time, right? Vindicated in the spirit. This is the idea of when Jesus, uh, Jesus's ministry was consistently given God's stamp of approval. Remember, you would have the voice come from heaven. This is my beloved son, hear him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? And when Jesus died, he was raised from the dead. Why was he raised from the dead? because death had no hold on him. He had lived the perfect life, that he was able to be the perfect substitute and the perfect atonement. And so his resurrection is God's stamp of approval on his life and his death. His ascension is the same way. 
seen by angels in heaven and here, proclaimed among the nations. The one name that is above every name, right? Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That would be another one that he could have put in front of. This is a trustworthy statement. There would have been another place to put it. All right, any questions? We've gone over a little bit again. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us to our own devices when it comes to how we are to to function in your body. Thank you that you gift us for service. You gift every single one of us for service. Thank you that you... uh, You give some that are going to be more visible. You give some that are behind the scenes. And yet, uh, we're grateful for for those who labor behind the veil uh, in service to you, in service to our body. Thank you for pastors. Thank you for deacons. Thank you for, for women who assist with the deacons. Thank you for how you have organized your household. Help us to be faithful in proclaiming your name. Help us to be faithful in in seeking out uh, others to to speak the gospel, to, to seek those that are straying. Father, this is your body. It's your, uh, the body that we've been brought into. Help us to be faithful in what we do. We pray that we would as we come into the main service now, that we would worship you aright, that our hearts would overflow with gratitude for what you have done for us, for what you're doing in us. Father, help us to look forward to the day when every day is going to be a continual worship in your presence where we'll be able to see you and we're going to be like you because we'll see you as you are. How we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.